We're going to be back in Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 979. We're in chapter 6. I won't do as much review as I did last week, but I'll give you just a little bit of a running start or context for where we're at in Ephesians. Ephesians, the book looks like this. One way to, to uh, summarize it would be a theme is chosen in Christ by God's grace, together in Christ by God's grace. That is, the togetherness, especially that's emphasized in Ephesians, is that Gentiles participate in God's promises. Uh, the Jews, on some level, expected it or were given those promises. And they were caretakers of those promises. But we find out in Ephesians that Gentiles become, are welcomed into these promises as well. So we're chosen in Christ, together in Christ, and then walking in Christ. What does it mean that God's grace has done all of that? What does it mean to walk in newness of life? Those are mostly chapters 4, 5, and 6. Another way to look at it would be sit, walk, stand. It says seated. Uh, Watchman Nee was a Chinese Christian who was persecuted for his faith way back in the 19, I think, 50s or 60s and maybe both. He wrote a short little book called Sit, Walk, Stand based on Ephesians. Ephesians talks about you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And then it talks about what it means to walk because of your position in Christ and then what it means to stand against the wiles of the devil. Sit, Walk, Stand is another way to Look at all of the book of Ephesians. But we're in chapter 6, which goes back to chapter 5. And these are what Luther called the household codes. Uh, what does a Christian household consist of? What does it look like? It answers, well, it addresses these categories, wives and husbands, children and parents, with a particular emphasis on fathers, and then also slaves and masters, your Bible may say servants, we're going to talk about that, uh, how it is that Paul gives instructions to slaves slash bond servants slash servants. What does that mean and, and how that can be uh, a stumbling block to uh, people in America, this concept that Paul doesn't just say stop it, uh, but rather he gives instructions to slaves. He's answering two questions. What is the Lord's will for me? And what does being filled with the Spirit look like in my situation? So wives and husbands could ask, what is God's will for me? What is the Lord's will? What does it look like in my situation to be filled with the Spirit? Paul says, here's your answer. That's in the end of chapter 5, to both wives and husbands. For children and parents, which is actually where we're at right now, he's addressing children, what is the Lord's will for you? Here's the Lord's will. And for parents, here's the Lord's will. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? He'll give you some very general instructions what it looks like in the case of children and parents. So let's move on from this. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it starts off with these words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. A few general remarks. Number one, I want you to consider how relevant this is because I realize we're spending a second message now on, on children's responsibility, especially shaded also with a parent's responsibility. And if you were back in chapter 5, which we were, it was last year when we were in chapter 5, you could say, well, I'm not a wife, I'm not a husband, I don't have any kids, I'm not sure why I'm here. Uh, 
I think there is relevancy for all of Scripture, for all of God's people, though this has particular relevance to children. That's pretty obvious. But I think any time we are gathering to find out what God's Word teaches, there is relevance because we're learning how to understand what Scripture says. So even if you're not a parent, you have an opportunity to, to listen to what I'm saying and to, and to examine God's Word. Is that actually what the Bible teaches? It may not be relevant right now in my situation, but because God said it, I know it's important. And I may be in a position where I'm talking with somebody where I can offer some counsel and I need to know what God's word says. So on some level, all of God's word is always relevant to all of God's people. This is particularly relevant to children slash parents. Number two, the instruction Paul gives is very clear and very short on specifics. Uh, any, any child here, I think who can read, would be able to answer the question, what is the Lord's will for you? It's children, obey your parents. It's the word obey. You boil it down to the word obey. That's what, that's what the Lord's will is for children. But it lacks specifics. He didn't write a book on parenting. He gave us that verse to children, which I think is partly due to the fact that you can't reduce it to a simple formula or a simple equation that works exactly the same in every child's case. Every child has a responsibility to obey, but different children require a little bit different techniques and strategies as to what that may look like. How exactly is it, ex it is expressed? No child's off the hook from obedience, unless uh, it's an outlier case, the parents are abusive and things like that. I I'm not addressing those situations. I'm addressing the, the, the general category of children obeying their parents. So it's very clear instruction, but it's short on specifics. Not all methods and strategies are equally valid or effective. Just because there is some difference in parenting styles, it doesn't mean that every parenting style is equally wise or is equally going to produce this... Uh, this fulfillment of, of obedience from a child. So there's a way to evaluate on some level parenting styles. We'll look at that in just a moment. And lastly, there's no formula that, that guarantees an outcome. I'm going to recommend John Rosemond in a moment, who I've recommended last week as well. John Rosemond, by training, is a child psychologist, uh, but he's also very... Um, authoritative in his parenting style. And if you look at his books or his website, you'll get the impression that it sounds like, a, it sounds like an equation. If you do this, you are guaranteed that outcome. He, I mean, on some level, he's trying to sell books. He's trying to sell what he's got to tell you. But there is no formula. It doesn't work like that. You could, you could be the best, most consistent parent out of anybody in this entire group and you can't guarantee an outcome in your child because child, children are on some level an end to themselves and they can't be reduced to a formula. So I, I think it's worth making that point. The people, some of the people I recommend would be Greg Harris, Elizabeth Elliott, Charles Stanley, James Dobson, and John Rosemond. I've got a 
a few resources still on the back table, uh, some of those resources that are free, uh, some other resources on the table that are not necessarily from one of those five, uh, and it's still free if it's on the back table. I've also got some audio messages that I can share with you if you're interested in a certain uh, age range or your situation. What does John Roseman say or what does Elizabeth Elliot say? Uh, I can pass on that information if you will but ask. Regarding John Roseman in particular, he's got a Facebook group called Parent Guru. If you're on Facebook or you can just go to parentguru.com. Uh, he has a lot of free resources there. He's also got a membership plan that gets you some perks, which uh, I'm too old for that now, so I don't have to buy into the membership plan. But I do recommend John Roseman's, a lot of stuff that he says is not only humorous, I think it is uh, largely effective. So how do we evaluate a parental strategy? I think there's four questions that you can ask. Uh, as a parent, to see if you're in a good place in where you want to be with parenting. The first question is most important. Does this strategy accurately represent the Bible's teaching on the subject? And the word teaching is capitalized because what, however you want to parent, you can find a verse that supports how you want to parent. But as my mentor taught me, we shouldn't go by what the Bible says. We have to go by what the Bible teaches. And going by what the Bible teaches means not picking the one verse that supports what I want to do, but it's looking at what the Bible says collectively as a whole and saying, this is what it teaches when you consider all that it has to say on the matter. This is what it teaches, and therefore I will do this thing. So that's question number one. Question number two, which follows from the first question, does this strategy proceed from an accurate view of human nature? I talked about that a little bit more last week than I will now, but it's a valid question. Third question, is this strategy derived from time-tested wisdom or from the latest trends and theories? Now, there's a fallacy that's potential there because just because something's old doesn't make it right. But the Bible also does teach that there is wisdom. It is what has been handed down to us. And so I ought to be more apt or wanting to listen to what has gone before and people have learned and, and what they've passed on than what happens to be the latest trend on whatever, wherever you get your latest trends. And there's always a latest trend because somebody's always trying to sell something. And there's latest trends in what you wear. Uh, there's latest trends in what you drive. There's latest trends in how you furnish your homes because somebody wants you to buy something. So there's trends in parenting, too, because somebody's got something to sell. It doesn't mean it's wrong, and it may be really good. But I ought to be more apt to want to listen to those that have gone before than what happens to be the latest trend. The last question is, is this strategy developing more consistent obedience in my child? Because that's the command we're shooting for. Children, obey your parents. So if my strategy is not resulting in a more consistent obedience, I ought to at least have pause to consider if my strategy is a good strategy. It might be, because it might be a very biblical strategy. You might uh, be doing really what the Bible summarizes a parent ought to do, 
and your child just is disobedient. Sometimes there are strong-willed children. Dr. Dobson has a book about those. Uh, John Roseman talks a lot about strong-willed children as well. So there is such a creature. But generally speaking, there ought to be a greater consistency and obedience moving forward. That's, uh, that's a result you should expect or want to see. The foundation for all of this is Proverbs 22:15. at least in my mind. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far from him. What is the Bible's teaching? What is an accurate view of human nature? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of correction. And the rod of correction, I suppose on some cases it means maybe, you know, I know some parents have used like a wooden spoon uh, on occasion to spank their child because they didn't want discipline to be associated with their own hand. Uh, I learned not to do it with a ping pong paddle because I broke a really expensive ping pong paddle. <laughs> I learned you're a lot better off with those little, those little wooden paddles that have a, a string and a, a, like a rubber band and a rubber ball and you do that because that's not plywood and they don't break nearly as easy. Uh, just a little, uh, what, a pro tip, that's a pro tip. I also would say, uh, though I think, I think uh, physical discipline, there are occasions for it, I found it as a parent to be very, very few and far between. Uh, one child required a little more than others, which I mention on occasion, but, but every, every child there were instances, but really not often. I mean, some corporal discipline I think can be a slap of the hand. I, had a nice stereo, and one child was just enamored with my stereo, and so that child got a lot of hand slaps. Uh, for all of the children, once or twice, maybe in their lifetime, maybe they'd remember differently, they would get a pop on the mouth, because my wife and I, we didn't tolerate defiance and backtalk, and there's nothing, nothing will stop that quicker than a little pop in the mouth. I'm not talking knocking teeth out, I'm not talking closed fist. I'm talking a pop in the mouth. I got popped in the mouth as I was a child. Uh, my kids got a few pops in the mouth. It's, it's just part, what I would consider part of uh, driving out that foolishness that, it, that comes out of the mouth. Uh, by the way, last week, uh, God's wife, she's in the nursery, but she asked about that word child because Ephesians talks about children obey your parents, and the word child is found in Proverbs, it can't be the same word because in Ephesians it's written in Greek and in Proverbs it's written in Hebrew. But the word child here has a, a, some, a very large semantic range. In other words, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean from, I don't know if it goes all the way down to infants. I probably read and I forgot. But it means, as, I'll say, as small as you want to imagine, and it can mean a young man. It can mean a young adult. I think generally, really what that word child can mean, if, if your offspring is younger than you, they're a child, according to that word. Uh, we, were, we did that sidetrack in 2 Samuel where David was dealing or not dealing with his son Absalom. And Absalom was uh, in a treasonous rebellion against David, his father, and trying to kill him to, over, to take the kingdom. And you'll remember David said, is it well with the young man Absalom? When he says young man, he uses that same word child. So you could translate, is it, is it well with the child Absalom? Well, in Absalom's case, 
He's declared himself to be king. He's a full-grown adult. He's had children himself. He's got his own household. And David uses the word child because he's still younger than David is. But generally speaking, it most cases, it's referring to a dependent, it's referring to a juvenile, it's referring to a child, as we tend to think of in our own culture. Uh, I'll leave it at that. So Paul's advice, if I were to summarize and peek ahead, it's bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because this is true, foolishness is bound up in their hearts, Paul says in Ephesians, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because foolishness is there. You can't just live by positive parenting. Positive parenting is denying what the Bible says is true. There's foolishness in there. And all the positivity in the world isn't going to drive out that foolishness. It requires a measure of discipline. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Last week we saw that this is a natural law and order uh, reason. In other words, God designed creation for children to obey their parents. That's just the way it is. That's not a result of sin. That's the result of creation. So there is a creative order that when we're done with Ephesians, and if I wind up going to Genesis, though I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit afraid of doing Genesis because that's, in some ways there's so much at stake and there's so much nuance and opinions are very strong and and we could get really bogged down, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I, Genesis really is so foundational to so much of everything else we believe about the Bible, about God, about ourselves. The roots really are found in Genesis. I'm thinking that's where we'll go. And if we go to Genesis, the creative order will be such that children, though Adam and Eve did not have children before sin... But if they had not sinned, children still would have been required to obey, and it would have been an easy command to obey because they wouldn't have had any foolishness in their hearts. That came as the result of sin. Jesus was without sin. He learned obedience. He had opportunities throughout his life for obedience, and he always did the right thing because there was no foolishness in his heart. But he still obeyed. He still had to obey. So that's a natural law and order reason why children ought to obey. God made it that way. And we looked last week that if you reject or deny uh, this natural order, it results in spiraling disorder and sin. There's two passages in particular that give this, this uh, laundry list of very ugly sins. And in the middle of both those lists is disobedience to parents which on some level it's like, that doesn't sound as bad as some of those others. But in God's order of things, when the home breaks down and there's defiance and disobedience of parents, that's why you have a lot of those other sins you think you want to avoid. So, obedience is the expected norm. I'm, I realize there are, well, what about this case? And what happens if this happens? And, you know, what if my parents like this or that? Uh, if children find themselves in a situation that they think is entirely unfair and unright, and their parent uh, is way overstepping the bounds with their discipline, then they need to talk with somebody. I would say in the church, talk with somebody in the church. Uh, it may not be the case at all, but it may be. The, I don't want to leave a child in an abusive situation. But what Paul's dealing with is just the, 
what is generally true to be the case. I, there are exceptions. If a parent asks a child to do something that is wrong slash sinful, a child shouldn't obey. But that's the exception, not the rule. I know of situations where a parent wants their child to lie about their age because it will get them some, they'll save a little bit of money if the child is under a certain age. So just lie, say you're that age, it'll save me a few bucks. That seems, um, seems like a poor way, a poor lesson to want to teach your children about ethics and morals and honesty and character to save a few bucks. Or, or parents that uh, if they, they want their children to sneak in uh, refreshments into the movie theater because the movie theater already costs too much. And I'm not going to pay a premium for popcorn or for a soda that you could get at a fraction of the cost. It's voluntary. That's, they're running a business just like anybody that runs a business. And that's one way they make money. It would be better to, to have character and not ask your child to do something that is wrong than to do it and save a few bucks. So obedience is the expected norm in the command that Paul gives. Number one, a parent's job is not to convince, persuade, reason, beg or bribe that child. A parent is not charged with, you have got to convince them what you are telling them to do is the best thing. It's in their own best interest. That is not my job as a parent. To have to convince them of that or beg them to do that. Or don't you see, let me give you the pros and the cons. There is a place where it is entirely okay for a parent to say, because I said so. I think you would be a bad parent if you did that your entire life and every answer was because I said so. But I think there are times where it is entirely appropriate and actually healthy for a child to say, I want you to obey because I said so. I don't owe you an explanation. I don't have to convince you this is good. You do it because I said so. Uh, I think you will find that in life and under God, there are rules and commands that we have to obey whether we understand them or not. So a parent's job is not to do that. Secondly, children should learn obedience to authority first from parents at home. Paul is implying parents are teaching their children obedience. It's not... uh, Children should not learn obedience first from the daycare, from the babysitter, from the school teacher, from the school system, from the coach, from whoever's organizing some activity, not from the police, not from the judicial system. That's not who is charged with teaching children obedience. It's parents. That's where it should start. So if as a parent I'm struggling with that and I'm like, well, you know that police officer, he's going to get you one of these days. Or you know that teacher is not going to put up with that in her class. It's not their job to teach. Now, they should support what parents are doing. They shouldn't have a chaotic situation in and of themselves. But the charge is given to parents. Children are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says in the Lord, because this is uh, to obey your parents, is to obey the Lord. Because this is part of God's design. It's part of God's order. We know that children will disobey, just like Christians will sin. But I told you last week, one of my points was I should not myself to it. I should not make allowance for it. I should not accommodate it. Children will disobey. 
but I shouldn't expect it to be the case. I shouldn't say, well, my child's, you know, they're going to go through adolescence. They're going to go through these teen years, and you know, boys, they just got to sow their wild oats. Or you know they just have to cut the, per, uh, the apron strings. They just have to do these, these sinful things because it's part of growing up. It's wrong. And by God's grace, a child doesn't have to experience that. It may happen. It may happen. In our culture, I might even say it'll probably happen. But don't expect that it has to be a rite of passage. I think it's possible to grow up and be godly, and you will sin without going through this, this period of turbulence where, where all moorings are cast aside. I don't think it has to be that way. So don't accommodate it or allow for it in that, well, that's just part of growing up. That's just what they're going to do. And that's, I credited Charles Stanley for changing my thinking regarding that. But let's, let's address the situation, what happens when children do disobey? And when children do disobey as a parent, and you as a parent, you still sin. So what happens is you learn to balance both mercy and justice. I still sin, and so I, I look to God for mercy, and I celebrate his mercy and his grace, but I also know that God cares enough about me to discipline me, and sometimes that hurts. And you read about it in Hebrews chapter 12. God doesn't adopt just this positive parenting style, where he never, um, he never corrects in a way that is somewhat painful, because he does that too. I remember, I haven't told this story in a long time, maybe even ever, but uh, I mean, I went through a rebellious period when I was, like, I don't know when it was, either very late, 19, 20, probably weren't good years, somewhere in there. Uh, I've never attained sinless perfection, just to keep the record straight. So I still sin, but 19 and 20 probably weren't good years. And so I believe God really wanted to correct that behavior. He wanted to get that out of my life. And so I was in a series of three car accidents. And the first one was, um, it wasn't my fault at all. Uh, somebody hit me, it was, and it, but it kind of made you think about what could have happened. The second one was my fault, uh, and it wasn't really as bad as the first one, but it was, and this all happened within, all in the same year for sure. And the third one, I totaled my car. And, and you know, I can't put a Bible verse on it. I can't swear to the fact that I think that's exactly what God was doing. But the way I understood it and the way I took it is God was getting my attention. Like, the way you're living is not consistent with what you say you are, a Christian. What you say you believe, it's not consistent and that's got to stop. Uh, and it got my attention by the third. So I'm a, little, I'm a slow learner. I get that. But by the third time, uh, some pretty big changes happened in my life. So balancing mercy and justice. Second, parents don't need to be perfect themselves in order to carry out their responsibility to discipline their children. You don't have to be perfect yourself to discipline your child. I think David struggled with that with his son Absalom. Because David was a sinner. But David needed to address his son's sin and rebellion and anger and resentment. I think David needed to push into that rather than ignore it and remain estranged from his son for year upon year upon year. All right, let's move forward. Read number two. For children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
We've already seen it's a natural order. It's a natural command by God's creative design. We also now see that it is a command within the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel way back in the day. Paul says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's commandment number five. Unless you're Lutheran, then it's command number four. Uh, because Luther, well, it's a long story. They, they divide up their commandments a little different. I, I think the Catholic Church probably does too. Most Protestant churches have this as number five. I think they're right. So the big difference here is you've got the word honor instead of the word obey. The commandment talks about honor your father and your mother. Paul says obey your parents. They're not the same word. Honor is a more comprehensive general term of which obedience is a subcategory. And the difference there is Paul is giving household codes. And the Ten Commandments are given as like a, a constitution to Israel as a nation. So within the household and children being at home, these dependents, their command is... Is, is more narrowly defined than honor, it's obey. But honoring is a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong obligation. And in Israel, as God has is, is made these people his nation, it includes infants and it includes the oldest person in the whole group. But every child is to honor his parents. That's a lifelong commitment. Jesus quotes that command twice in the Gospels. In each case, when he talks about honoring your parents, he's talking to adults honoring their adult parents. When Jesus uses it, he's not talking about household codes. He's talking about what's it going to be like in Israel. And in Israel, their culture, their society, their nation is going to be the kind of a nation that regards God's family in a certain way. And that is children will honor their parents as long as those parents live. Well, what does honor look like? It can look like a lot of different things. I mean, not every parent uh, is a, you don't have the same, not every child has the same relationship with their parent. But in some way, somehow, parents need to be honored. So that's the second command. He also uh, mentions this is the first commandment with a promise. And what does that mean? And that's going to be really interesting. Um, and I really don't have time for it this morning. The best way to understand what that means, where we're going to head with that, is to add verse 4. Because if you add verse 4, we're going to start putting this all together, and it'll make better sense. Verse 4 reads this way. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, if I add verse 4, and now I kind of break it down, put all this together, what Paul's saying, his model, his, his code for households, particularly we're talking Christian households, it looks like this. Number one, children should obey and honor their parents. That's easy. Conversely, and by implication, parents are charged with giving direction and commands. Now, he doesn't explicitly say that to parents, but it, it has to be implied because if children are obeying their parents, it's implying the parents are actually giving direction and supervision to the family. If a parent has no rules, then a child can't disobey because there are no rules. Paul expects there to be rules and guidance 
It's amazing to me, in our enlightened 21st century, actually this goes back to the 20th century, my lifetime, there are parents that I hear, I've heard them say, uh, on sometimes a documentary or whatever the case may be, I've heard them say, I would never impose my values on my child. I want them to discover what is truth for them all by themselves. And the word impose is a bad word, so I wouldn't want to impose my values on my child, but I definitely want to acquaint my child with my values. Because to do otherwise is to say, look, child, I'm, I'm 30 years older than you. Maybe I'm 40 years older than you. I'm no closer to knowing what is true than you are. And so you've got to discover truth all by yourself. What is right? What is wrong? Who am I to say? I know what's right and wrong for me. But I would never want to impose that upon you. So you discover your own way. You go your own way. What is best for you? A parent's job is to provide supervision and, and commandments so that a child is put into a position where they will either obey or disobey. But a Christian parent certainly has something to say about right and wrong, about God and sin, about forgiveness in Christ. Compliance opens the door to wellness and longevity and then the fourth one is fathers are charged with and intentionality. Those are two ditches. To lack restraint or to not be intentional. And fathers can fall into one of those two. And that's what we'll talk about more next week, which are reflected in verse 4. Uh, what are your comments and questions from this week? One more week on parenting and we'll be done. On these first four verses. I thought maybe we even finished today, but we obviously didn't. Katie. Um, I think, obviously, the says, like, Yes. Oh, I think, I think that goes back to the balancing mercy and justice. So I, th I think it's always a balance. It'll look a little bit differently, you know, in my family, from your family and another family. It may look a little bit different with each child, depending on the makeup and character of the child. But as I have received mercy... I extend mercy. As I've received mercy from God, I may receive mercy from my child uh, or from my spouse or whatever the case may be. Because you're right. We all are sinners. We all, to some degree, have foolishness bound up in us. And so we all need mercy. We all need mercy. You're right. It's, it's an incredible balance. But it would be a mistake to do what David did with Absalom and be so crippled by his own sin that he's not able to give direction to his son Absalom when he needed it most, and Absalom wound up dead. Rick? Good question, though. Yeah, it certainly would be, and it clearly was in David's life, but in another way, he needed to resolve it knowing that we serve a merciful God, and then he should have been able to push into that and extend that mercy to his own family. But he, he was very much affected by his sin, which we all are. Our sin affects us, affects more than just ourselves. It's just true. Uh, we're a people who've received mercy. We need to extend that mercy. I mean, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the human experience. Psalms is a great example of Rick mentioning that because the Psalms have, have these wonderful highs, like Psalm 104 that we read. But it's also got these 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 lows of, of sadness and depression and sorrow and guilt. 
Because you know what? That's part of the human experience. Christianity is not Buddhism where we deny that we're emotional creatures and, and we just believe there's really no such thing as pain and hurt and suffering. We understand that there is. But we also know it's resolved in a God who's greater than anything we can experience under the sun. Somebody else? Uh, yeah. I mean, I appreciate you sharing. And I, I'm a believer in using resources to help you parent well. Because I am all about res. I love, you know, the ones that I've shown on the screen. Charles Stanley, Dobson, Elizabeth Elliot. Those are all resources that helped me parent better. Not perfectly, but better. Because I didn't always understand what to do. Yes. And that's where Hillary Clinton, as much as you may not like her, she was right. It takes a village to raise a child. That's true. That's true. You can't do it on your own. It takes a village. She was right in that. Jonathan. Now, one of the things I mentioned last week that I didn't mention this week, because I, I uh, detailed a little bit more about that balancing mercy and justice, and mercy is not not doing anything. Mercy is not inattentiveness. Mercy is doing something, but it's bathed in mercy. In other words, it is pushing into the situation. It's like, well, I've received mercy from God, so I'm, I'm not going to address my child's disobedience. That's not mercy if you haven't addressed it. You still need to push into it to address it, but it may not come with a consequence or a severe consequence. I mean, the consequences may vary. You know, there's also a difference. I mean, you could Google this. Anybody, you're going to find this all over the place. There's a difference between authoritarian parent and authoritative parent. Authoritarian and authoritative. Authoritarian is... you. It's, it's a parent that's just a dictator and tries to rule and, and reign and control the situation all the time. That's authoritarian, and, and I think everybody agrees that's bad. But authoritative, where you've actually got something to say, and you're pushing towards a direction, and you know what the goal is, and you're using both mercy and justice to try to attain that goal, that's authoritative. You've got something to say. That's good parenting. Now, if you do Google that, you're going to say, uh, they're going to characterize authoritarian. One of the things they will say is, if you say, because I said so, that's authoritarian. I disagree with that. I think if that's all you say, it's authoritarian. But if you on occasion say, I am telling you to do that as your parent, and I'm not giving you an explanation on this occasion, I think that can be good parenting as well. Somebody else? Cindy? Because there are those natural consequences in life. Yeah, somebody else? Good discussion. Let's close in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for uh, the wisdom of Scripture. It makes us wise into salvation.